0: This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Khan Nam.
1: And this is Jamal Dejani.
0: Jamal, we have a lot to cover today. We have some big topics to cover, plus we're going to have an in-studio guest. I think uh, one of the things that I'd like to talk about, which is kind of a major event in terms of uh, covering the Arab world in the Middle East, is the very tragic passing of Mohamed Morsi, the first democratically elected president of Egypt in the modern era. As I'm sure m- many of our listeners know, earlier this week, Mohamed Morsi was brought to an Egyptian courthouse. He is being retried, he was being retried on espionage charges. He asked his attorney if he could uh, speak for a few minutes. He spoke for approximately five minutes, collapsed immediately was rushed to a hospital and pronounced dead on arrival. Mohammed Morsi, the first democratically elected president of the Egyptian Republic in the modern era dead after spending five years uh, in prison. Jamal, it's a tragedy for Egypt. It's a tragedy for the Arab world, and it's a tragedy for democracy. That's right, Jess. I mean, I want to
1: talk about it because this is really important even though, I mean, this is the thing. uh, This story received very little coverage internationally and hardly any coverage in the Egyptian media. And I'll come back to the Egyptian media because this is very important. In fact, if on the day uh, Mohammed Morsi passed away and and the day after, if you opened the main newspapers in Egypt, if you looked at Al Ahram uh, and others, The headline news was about meetings that uh, protocol meetings that uh, President Sisi was having and other things. And then in the lower part corner, just a short story, you know, paragraph or two telling you about the death of a former Egyptian president.
0: It's unbelievable. and,
1: And like you said, Jess, he was the first and only probably uh, no actually he was the only <laughs> democratically elected, elected uh, president of, of Egypt yeah so uh, and so i want i want to take us back to the days of and this is you know we'll look at this and then this is will 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 be all connected now you can love mohammed morsi or you can hate him that's you not, can yeah, be that's you know not that's the not point. the issue no You can agree with him. You can disagree with him, but you cannot dispute the fact that he was elected democratically. Yes. And I am an eyewitness to this. That's right. You were there because I was in Egypt on the first day, you know, the election in Egypt, the presidential elections in Egypt, and I have to tell the story. So I have to tell the whole process. Right. So on the first day of the elections, I was in Cairo in Egypt. And was running from precinct to, to another precinct to to see the turnout, and they had a huge turnout the second day, early in the morning, I, along with my team, we flew to Aswan to Upper Egypt, or in, which is really the south of Egypt, but referred to as Upper Egypt, to see kind of a difference to see how uh, the elections were handled there outside the capital, which is, which is Cairo, and in both places, it was. Uh, I would say uh, very few incidents happened. Uh, The international um, monitoring community, including President Carter's group were monitoring the elections to make sure. And they certified it to certify that this was done democratically and the people voted. And this was the first time when you saw an election result that that was I think 53 percent to approximately to Mohammed mercy 47 instead to, of 99 to Shafiq percent. and not the 90 percent <laughs> and 99 percent at the time because we you know, we covered the elections for two days and it took few days to certify it. The atmosphere was very tense.
2: It
0: was
1: because they were reporting just they were reporting that the elections were very close I mean these are the early news so the so the Egyptian media and other monitors are saying high turn they, that they've had a high turnout the elections were very close they needed to be certified. there were rumors circulating that the military junta was going to certified elections in favor of Shafiq. There was in. I mean, I mean, this this is a, real, a reality. People were very nervous because people who voted, if you ask people, but well, who did you vote for? They wanted to get out of this whole military establishment thing. I mean, after all, that's why they got rid of uh, Mubarak and right. etc. so they were like looking forward to have the first civilian president. And everyone was thinking, well, he must have won because just uh, unofficial results were showing us that more people. The turnout was huge. The mercy was receiving all the support. And now the rumors have had very tense rumors saying that Shafiq was going to be certified. And at the last minute, the military decided no. Right. They've kind of measured the the pulse. tense air and the pulse the and pulse. they pretty much thought, especially coming after a revolution now that, you know, you're gonna, you know, play, play with these results. People are going to come back to the streets and we are in trouble. Plus they had the eye of the international community basically right. on them. So finally they said, no, he won and people were euphoric you know, some people don't like, you know, the, of, of course Mohamed Morsi comes with his baggage because there are a whole also group of people who don't want to be don't want to see the, uh, you know, the uh, uh, Muslim Brotherhood uh, take over the government. Nevertheless, he won and he became president. Now, I want to fast forward and I don't want to talk about the time because I was going in and out of Egypt and uh, I would say uh, Morsi and his uh, followers and the people he brought in made a lot of mistakes. They did make a lot of mistakes. So they've made a lot of mistakes. I mean, after all, he's a novice, he's a civilian, he's a professor, he's an educated man. By the way, he has a Ph.D., which many people don't talk about that. And he's not a politician. We've seen this happen. So what is uh, Trump is a politician, right? I mean, you know, you don't always elect people who come from the political uh, elite elite or stream and immediately. And this is the difference between today and uh, like as far as the media, you know, I'm talking about the media. The media came immediately attacking him. They didn't give him a chance. They were making all kinds of jokes like Morsi. He's gonna have not one first lady. He's gonna have four first ladies, all kinds of cartoons, uh, all the spotlights on him. And he might have not done a great job as far as uh, reviving the economy. People were expecting too much within that one year. Basically, they destroyed his reputation. That's right. Like again, I said, he's not the perfect person.
0: No, But that remember, Jamal, but, that was the Mubarak uh, media infrastructure too. That m- was part. I mean, he he really never got a fair shake. No, no, he never got a fair shake.
1: And they waited for the meaning. The military waited for the right moment. They again measured the pulse of the street, and they saw people started to turn against him. They're unhappy, and they've seized the opportunity, of course, to arrest him and charge him with the uh, gaff and uh, corruption and and, uh, spying. and and spying for hamas all kinds of things. Now, like I said, I don't want to get into this because he's not a perfect person. And uh, a lot of people didn't support him, but he never had a chance to survive beyond those 12 months. Mm -hmm. And so now there was a coup d'etat that no one, no one wanted to admit that happened. There was a coup d'etat. How did they get rid of mercy? a democratically elected president. The military came into the equation. They mobilized a lot of critics, especially what I call the Egyptian paid media. And I'll tell you why about now coming back to the Egyptian paid media who didn't have the decency to even report on his death as a former president. I mean, uh, I think a, a a drug lord would get more <laughs> prominence, you know, if he died in in a, in a jail than Mohammed Morsi. They totally
0: neglected you, his death. You should regarding the coup, you should remind our listeners that uh, at the time, the head of the military was General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, so the current president uh, of Egypt. So it was al-Sisi, who is a protege of Mubarak, who led the coup d'etat that uh, fell the, you know, first and only democratically elected president of Egypt in the modern era. So all of these things are connected because you're right. The paid media never gave them a fair shake, but the paid media is part of their
1: military establishment. Listen, just and I'll tell you something funny now when the revolution happened and this is when people were millions of people were, were demonstrating against mubarak the egyptian media and i'm talking about not only al ahram which is the main newspaper but the egyptian nile tv and the egyptian egyptian te- television channel 1 they were reporting on different things they had hundreds of thousands of people uh, right gathered right at tahrir square and they were ignoring that they they had this thing And then as soon as the revolution happened and Mubarak was pretty much deposed the second day, I mean, these, if you look at the headlines up to the last day of Mubarak, they were praising Mubarak to the high heavens. Absolutely. The second day after he was deposed, they went and they said, you know, pretty much like long live the revolution. They did the whole 180. Right. And they basically switched to their support to the revolution. And it didn't take them much to go back to start praising the military and how the military saved Egypt, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So now, you know, of course, if you open the newspaper every single day, it's, uh, you know, might as well. They're, they're covering uh, Sisi as if he's a God or he's a Pharaoh. Basically, the Egyptian Pharaoh and everything is all about him. And then the death of a former president, right? And the way he died, which we will get to it to this to, to talk about the way he died was totally ignored. So so Mohammed Morsi, not only was he left to rot and die in prison, but also was totally scraped off from the whole history or modern history of Egypt. I mean, that that whole year, right? There's a whole attempt to pretty much basically not bury him once, but bury him twice. Well,
0: Jamal, they they unfortunately buried Mohammed Morsi multiple times. I want to do a couple of things really quick. I want to go back to the original context for how Morsi got elected in Egypt, and then I want to jump forward a little bit to talk about prisons in Egypt, which I know a little bit about, and the conditions of confinement, what it's like to be in a prison in Egypt. Number one. We talked about uh, Mohammed Morsi being the first democratically elected uh, president in the modern era in Egypt. But remember where it started, Jamal. It started in Tunisia with the Arab Spring. And so there was this effect of the Arab Spring that kind of... You know the so-called Arab Spring. Well, the so-called we refer to it as the Arab Spring now. It's kind of now become the Arab winter, unfortunately. But at that time during the Arab Spring, there was this excitement and enthusiasm about the possibility that yes, there was the possibility of democracy in the Arab world. And Tunisia went through its process, it spread throughout the region. The next place where it really took hold, Jamal, was in Egypt. And you were there. And we all remember in Tahrir Square, the millions of people that were marching on the streets that eventually led to, you know, what happened, you know, Mubarak being um, basically um, arrested and released eventually and the election of uh, Mohammed Morsi. When Morsi was arrested, Jamal, this is really important point. He was not a well man. No, physically anyways. No. no, he has a long history of, of health, health problems. issues. Yes,
1: including diabetes, liver and kidney disease. I mean, this is uh, well known. And he has been behind bars for six years, uh, basically fo- following the toppling. Uh, his toppling by a military coup led by El Sisi in 2013, July 2013. By the way, I also was there in Egypt during the referendum on on Sisi. And since he, I mean, everybody knew his health issues. And since he went to prison, he was denied medical care. His family was allowed to visit him in prison only three times in six years. In six years, three times. He was held in solitary confinement for as much as 23 hours per day, 23 hours per day under which under the United Nations, as you know, uh, guidelines is classified as torture. Yeah. So even though when he appeared, you don't have evidence of, let's say, beating, uh, you know, uh, on his face and whatever. But they were torturing him, torturing him for 23 hours per day. And so he was in very, very poor health. That actually, uh, many human rights organizations, including the United Nations and, and others, and Human Rights Watch uh, uh, brought his case many times to question that he should be granted medical care, and he, and, and, uh, he was denied. So, by the time they brought him, was too late. You know, I mean, you could say, Yeah, he di- he wasn't executed. Yes, he didn't die under under torture, immediate torture, visible torture. But he died a slow death.
0: Well, I would I would say Jamal, just to put it uh, in a little more context, your your description of Morsi's health even before he was arrested is is very accurate. He was a It was not a well man even before he was arrested. Egyptian prisons have been known internationally as being notorious for among the most cruel, inhumane and um, most despicable prisons, not just in the Arab world, Jamal, but in the entire world. You're right. Human Rights Watch, which is one of the monitors of prison conditions all over the world, has listed Egypt as one of the pri- Egypt's prison system as one of the worst. Well, Human Rights Watch issued a report
1: in 2017 basically outlining what you're talking about and saying, you know, talking about torture, inhumane conditions, etc. And guess what? The Egyptian government blocked human rights now from entering, you know, and its members from entering into Egypt or or holding a press conference uh, when they were in Cairo to uh, to talk about their findings. In uh, January 2019, uh, President Sisi denied the existence of political prisoners in Egypt in an interview with CBS's 60 Minutes show. I don't know if you remember that when he was was sweating and looked like with like like a deer with the headlights. You know, after after you stripped him from the very friendly uh, paid Egyptian media, uh, which usually. You know, interview him when he was in front of sixty minutes. It was embarrassing. It was embarrassing. He was embarrassing. And then when they asked him specifically about political prisoners, he said, "What political
0: prisoners? We don't have any political prisoners." Well, the the reality Jamal is that uh, Abdel Fattah al Sisi, President al Sisi, uh, is a dissembler. Uh, he completely misrepresented. It would be kind to say that he lied because. It is well known among Egyptians as well as the international community that not only does Egypt arrest its political opponents and has hundreds if not thousands of political prisoners that they practice on an ongoing basis torture. We have a term for it, Jamal, it's called no-touch torture. They do the touch torture, which Mm -hmm. is they inflict physical pain and suffering on people. They do that, but for a high-profile Uh, detainee prisoner like Mohammed Morsi, they do the no touch torture, which is the torture of solitary confinement, denial of Medicare. So you don't see the you don't see the welts. You don't see the scars. You don't see the bruising on the person. But what we know from research is that the solitary confinement, the denial of access to family and the what we call conditions of psychological conditions of confinement take its toll on even a healthy person. So Mohammed Morsi was essentially given a death sentence immediately when he was arrested. It's it's really tragic on so many different levels. And as as you said, and we've said this on Arab talk forever, Jamal, where Mohammed Morsi was a flawed candidate. But guess what? In a real democracy, yeah. you elect flawed candidates all the time. Um, this country not accepted, of course in a democracy, you elect someone who gets the most votes, except here, of course, with the Electoral College. But in a democracy, it's not against the law to elect an incompetent person. Now, Mohammed Morsi, um, unfortunately, when the history books are written, if they're written by the current regime, will not even be a footnote in the CC uh, textbooks under the CC regime. And it's really a tragedy because Egypt had a chance to really be a democracy. And um, tragically, it failed. And in the larger context of the Arab Spring, Jamal, we have to say really that we're in the midst of the Arab winter because with the downfall and collapse of the Arab Spring, minus maybe some things that happened in Tunisia, which still has some legs in terms of democracy, maybe some rumblings in Algeria. We are in what we would call the Arab winter where strongmen and dictators uh, and really brutal uh, leaders are, 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 are really, you know, what is ruling the roost, so to speak, in the Arab world, whether it's uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman in Egypt and his brutality with, you know, the way he exercises control over political opponents all the way to the Sudan, which we've been talking about, you know, for weeks now and how the interim government continues its brutal uh, attacks on, you know, the wish of the people of Sudan to actually have democracy. So the Arab Spring, Jamal, unfortunately, is we're still in the Arab, the cold, cold Arab winter.
1: All right. So we're gonna actually uh, um, switch subjects a little bit just because we have a lot of things to talk about. Oh, yeah, and we then do. We also have a guest uh, who will be joining us on the show uh, shortly from uh, palestine uh, but uh, again uh, two things of course two important things we can't ignore one the warmongering and the saber rattling we keep talking about kind it. of getting us into a conflict uh, with iran as as you know just within the past 24 hours and our show last week we discussed iran we were talking about this whole thing and the kind of a call to do something about Iran. And then within the past 24 hours, well, guess what? Last week, we were talking about attacks on Japanese uh, ships yes. and uh, oil tankers and, and, uh, and the pointing of the finger at uh, uh, the Iran as being responsible in Iran, denying this. And then, of course, uh, this uh, past 24 hours, a U.S. Drone was downed. By Iran, which Iran does not deny that it had uh, down this drone, but it's there is a two different stories. The American story is that the drone was downed in, in over international waters or in or in, in, in international airspace, and the Iranians say it was Iranian airspace. Exactly. So hello, you know. So they. So now and 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 there were heavy. Warnings, then it cooled down a little bit by Trump tweeting that basically Iran had committed a huge mistake, so which kind of hints to a uh, ret- retaliation. So from last week to this week, we've seen a ratcheting
0: of basically the rhetoric of the rhetoric from Pompeo from Pompeo. from uh, Senator Tom Cotton who is completely incompetent in terms of his analysis and understanding of the region. Tom Cotton, senator basically came up and testified, not testified, but gave an interview and said that basically we should start to buy that. They've crossed the line and uh, we should take military action to teach Iran a lesson. Completely ignorant, completely warmongering, completely um, uh, unsophisticated and ignorant analysis of what's happening in the world. So um, what wasn't covered? You're exactly right, Jamal. What wasn't covered is that the Iranians are claiming that the drone was in Iranian airspace. And if you go into the airspace of another country illegally or without announcing yourself, you run the risk of being um, uh, of being called out on it. And so from the Iranian perspective, this drone penetrated Iranian airspace and the the Iranian uh, military took steps to protect itself. That's one analysis.
1: Well, I mean, you have a pattern now of building a case to attack Iran. Going back since early May, early May, the attacks on uh, the Saudi refinery by the Houthis, right, an attack on now uh, two uh, Japanese uh, ships while the the Prime Minister of Japan was visiting visiting Iran, Iran which right? Is, like what a coincidence! And then followed by this week that Iran downs a an American drone. So. Which is it? Where are you going? Any minute now, I mean, something could happen. I mean, if, if they can basically pin that tail on. Well, they already have Jamal. No, I don't think so, because I think these are all balloons, and they are testing the will, not of the Iranian people, they are testing the will of the international community. They are testing to see if the international community is buying. These stories. Well, they did not buy the stories of you know. People are, were wondering. Well, why would Iran attack uh, right. you know, the Japanese ships no, when right. the, the Japanese right. prime minister is here? Why would Iran? The question now. Well, right. why would they down a drone if the drone wasn't flying over its airspace? Right. So there are now questions circulating. That's why after the initial uh, uh, threat, uh, kind of the rhetoric has ta- has cooled down a little bit. But I say they're gonna keep trying. I mean, I mean, my, my our prediction prediction initial predictions. Yes, is they're gonna keep trying until something sticks? Well, and, I, I and think that's where we're gonna get right get into heavy water. You but,
0: know. Un- but unfortunately, we see the United Kingdom kind of being more on the side of the Trump point of view on Iran, unfortunately. And it looks like Boris Johnson will become the next prime minister there, who is the Trump clone for the UK. I mean, both physically and politically, uh, uh, the rest of the EU, um, a little bit more hesitant. Some of the more cons- you know, uh, out there members of the <laughs> EU, uh, the, the current government in Poland, for example, and some of the former Eastern European bloc uh, countries uh, seem to be supporting Trump. One uh, I'm sorry that we're kind of uh, going fast here because I know we want to get to to, uh, to our guest Jamal, but something is really bothering me, mm-hmm. and we're going to switch gears here for a minute. I want to talk about one of the presidential candidates' stance on Palestine. Why not talk about them all? <laughs> I mean, I
1: know who you're going to yeah, be referring right, to right. because if you look at the New York Times article, here, right. you're referring to when. They were questioned about Israel's human rights violations violations and every single Democratic candidate was kind of twisting and turning in and the and wind, right. But I, I don't see anyone who gave a very
0: no, powerful the, and honest and response. Right. But there's one in particular uh, who I think needs to be called out, and that's Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Mayor Pete, when asked about if he were elected president. What would he do about the move of the uh, U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem? And Mayor Pete is fashioning himself as a progressive, as someone who's very thoughtful, who really takes on these subjects and tries to be fair and balanced. Here's what Mayor Pete Buttigieg said about the moving of the uh, American Embassy to Jerusalem. He said two things. One, he would leave it there. And his, his deep analysis, Jamal, was what is done is done that what is done is done. So, Mayor Pete, I have a couple of questions for you. What do you say about reparations for African Americans who are descendants of slaves in this country? Uh, Are you going to say we shouldn't do reparations because what is done is done or about victims of the Holocaust? What about victims of the Holocaust? What is done is done. You wouldn't have the audacity to say that about. Uh, survivors of the Holocaust or survivors of slavery, you would never say that an illegal, immoral, unethical act is what is done is done. Yet you pander to pro-Israel forces, pro-Israel lobby. You pander to APAC, and you have the audacity to hold yourself out as someone who has a deep analysis. And your analysis about this is what is done is done. Mayor Pete, you get a big F. You get a big fail. You're just like the rest. Too bad, Mayor Pete. All
1: right. So uh, we're going to be switching gears here. We're going to talk a little bit about the conference. In the meantime, we're going to bring our guests right yeah, here but, in, the, in the studio. And you're listening to? Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. And we also welcome our uh, viewers on uh, Facebook Live. We appreciate you always joining us every Every week from all over the world, and again, this is Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. And before we go and uh, interview, start talking to our guest uh, from Palestine here who will be with us uh, shortly, I want uh, to talk a little bit about the so called uh, Bahrain workshop because today. Yes, I was able to obtain uh, one of the uh, kind of the scheduled itinerary for the Bahrain uh, workshop, which is supposed to happen well, it's not Well, pe-
0: it's not a peace conference. It's no longer a peace conference. It's not the grand peace plan so that just, the Kushners... So just
1: briefly, what they're uh, basically selling, you know, when they're talking about it now, it's an economic workshop. I have the whole arrivals and registration from the cocktail reception to the opening opening speeches and panel and a new production video called imagining a prosperous Middle East region.
0: This is the theme
1: really for the conference. I
0: thought it was supposed to be about Palestine
1: and the first panel. The first panel. The time is now building a coalition for Middle East prosperity. So the issue of Palestine doesn't exist in, in, in a way. This is a comprehensive uh, economic conference for the Middle East, and they I have the names of the moderators. Who's the moderator? Well, there are different panels. One, one moderator is Nick, a, a growing professor and author and broadcaster from the United Kingdom. And then they have the first panel and then they have the second uh, panel uh, fostering culture of innovation and entrepreneurship. That's another uh, panel. The third, uh, the third one is empowering the pe- people. That's day two. It's, it's kind of you know what? Can I ask you a question? It's a mini world economic forum, and I wish it's it not was. not even that. I wish it was that because that's more organized it's not and either.
0: it has. So uh, let me just get. Let's cut it's to just the a chase. joke. Basically. How many Palestinians are there? There is one. Okay. One uh, who doesn't even live in Palestine. No, no, he does.
1: He does. Yeah, yeah. Jabari lives in Palestine. Jabari lives
0: uh, part time in Palestine.
1: Lives in the Hebron side where the settlers live there, and where he gets protection by the Israeli occupation army. So that's kind of like their right man kind of the, the representative everybody else is uh, Palestinians at least for now they're boycotting this this is the update is, anyway is King abdullah going no 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 Th- that actually Jordan is participating initially they said they weren't going to participate and that they're participating I don't know if the king is gonna go there or if he's gonna just send a uh, one of his representatives because I've heard that a lot of uh, these uh, uh, Arab countries uh, who committed to uh, going there, they are um, downgrading kind of their uh, presence. Now uh, we are going to welcome our guest in the studio right here uh, joining us uh, live from. Pal- well, live from Palestine. I guess. Well, <laughs> live from it's not live from Palestine, live, live in, from, from, from San Sep- Francisco, but via Palestine. Ida Shibli Shibley uh, and the uh, you are from tamera.org and also you describe yourself oh, as a global peace seeker. Yeah. So, what is uh, basically when you talk about being a global peace seeker?
0: You're not going to the uh, peace conference.
1: Are you are going you? to <laughs> the peace conference in Bahrain?
2: No, <laughs> unfortunately. No, uh, fortunately, no. So, salam alaikum. First of all, thank you for continuing the. Uh, you are like in a, in a wave from one topic to another. That's, that's how we do it. This okay. is how we roll. Yeah. That's Arab
0: talk. Yeah Thank
2: you. So I heard you just in the talk before you were saying he is not even living in Palestine So I want to admit from the beginning. I also don't live fully all the time in Palestine I live part of the time in Tamara Portugal and part of the time in Palestine, but I think Palestine is not an issue of uh, those who live there or do not live there. It's a global issue that needs to be addressed. Mm. That's right. Exactly. I'm not contradicting what you are. You just said about that person who is uh, participating in this Bahraini initiative. I'm not.
0: Tell us a little uh, bit about your organization.
2: I live in a community. It's not an organization. It's a intentional community in Portugal that is um, a project for forty years, twenty six years in Portugal. Wow. Wow. And that is in the base of this uh, community, which is a peace research village um, that seeking global um, solutions, the founders of it were um, participants of the um, student movement in 1968, uh, going out and, particip- and demonstrating against the system and very soon finding out that the- what we have been demonstrating against, we have it in our inner structures. And so in order to arrive to a place where we reach global peace, we need to acknowledge that the war and the violence and the conflicts would not exist in the outside unless it was inside of us, inside of us, including peace workers and peace activists. And so it is um, a community that gives a space for inner work and outer work. Uh, following the same statement that we can achieve peace in the outside as, as much as we can achieve it in the inside.
0: Um, Ida, can I ask you a question? Sure. I'm kind of curious about the, just from the outside first, before we get to the inside. Yeah. What, tell us about Portugal mm. and its relationship to Palestine just mm. in general. Yeah. I, I'm, I, maybe mm-hmm. our listeners don't know much yeah. about this.
2: I, I don't know if I would go more about Portugal, but I would go more about the community because if this community would be in anywhere else in the world, I will be there. Yeah. so it's I'm not in Portugal because of Portugal, mm-hmm. uh, but because of this uh, community. Uh, global um, community and this global community is initiating um, work in crisis areas in Palestine, in Kenya, in Brazil, in Colombia, in Mexico where we go to places where there are people who are working already as grassroots and creating the alternative and we go and support them and create spaces where we exchange knowledge with them. And so we do in Palestine, especially that I am Palestinian. So I'm leading this project in Palestine Mm. where we go there to the West Bank and encourage our people to uh, find an alternative way to resist the system. I mean, you both know for sure. And our um, people who are listening the injustice that is happening in Palestine due to the occupation now for 70 years and I'm from 48. So I'm, my my village is next to Nazareth. Yeah. yeah just uh, many times we speak about the occupation and then it goes so fast that it became so normal. So yeah, unfortunately um, a fact yeah. that uh, we have to deal about it or speak about it. And then we Compose sentences, and we say occupation, but mm. occupation is such a, a huge injustice, a huge um, yeah, a huge cloud of pain and suffer.
1: And and your so, so village? What's what, what's the name of your village?
2: My village is uh, like my family name Shibli. We are Bedouins, and um, the, our living places are called uh, according to the biggest family. So my tribe is the biggest tribe. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and is it Chibli. still? I mean, what 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 happened to the village now, since nineteen forty-eight? Mm-hmm. Because I mean, even when you talk about Nazareth, mm-hmm. uh, and I've been to Nazareth many times, demographically it has changed. Of yeah. course, it still has a large Palestinian community, Mm -hmm. but uh, half of Nazareth kind of like there is the what I call the Israeli Nazareth Mm -hmm. and the Arab Nazareth. And so demographically it has changed. And then many Mm -hmm. of the small villages around Nazareth. And that's why Mm
0: -hmm.
1: many of the people who live in Nazareth are not from Nazareth. They were evicted from those these villages and then came to live in Nazareth because Mm -hmm. their villages basically were appropriated or destroyed.
2: So as we, uh, I grew up as a Bedouin, and um, my grandfathers grew up as Bedouins, and they were not—they were nomads. They were not based on the land, but nevertheless, in nineteen thirty-six, the um, two-thirds of the tribe was slaughtered. Oh no! Uh, And um, actually, uh, I got to know this information only when I was seventeen. Wow! Because my. grandfathers and none of them wanted to speak about what happened in the before the Nakba. I'm speaking about six. They did not want to speak about what happened. And the only thing that uh, rescued us as a tribe or the people who remained only 250 people wow. remained from all this tribe. They were running up the mountain and take refuge in the um, church that's in top of Har, uh, of Mount uh, Tabor Mountain. Jabertur. Mm-hmm. And for three months, they were Christians. And so they in the end, they received a letter from the Pope saying that these are Christian uh, followers and they should be protected. And this is how my tribe survived um, the slaughter.
1: So so there is a misconception because we want to kind of clarify it to our listeners. Not all of our listeners are well versed in the situation the in Palestine. Mm. Palestine, because when you say you know you are a Bedouin,
2: yeah.
1: right, versus um, you know coming from the main cities, and then now you're talking about you're a Christian Bedouin.
2: Yeah, uh, we were for three months Christian Bedouins. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I love Jesus. Yeah. but I'm born as a Muslim, and um, as yeah. a person, I, I think that we all need to go beyond. The
1: existing religions. So, 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 basically, what you're telling our listeners, because uh, when this happened as a refuge, your tribe or the mm. people who survived basically became Christians, and that's why the Pope interfered yeah. or intervened yeah. and saved you.
2: Yeah. Otherwise. Yeah. You Otherwise, we would be slaughtered by the. You would have been. The, at that time, it was not the Israeli yet because it was 36. Right but we will be slaughtered by the Jewish armies that were operating within the British mandate. Mm -hmm. But just to say, like, it took me many years to take this information from our elders because they were post trauma situation and they did not want to speak about what happened, not in 36, not in 48. And um, back to the situation of Palestinians in 48 Our our situation is very complex and many people do not understand it. But nevertheless, I think that we are a very important bridge. To uh, use the privilege that we have, and they say privilege to have an Israeli passport is not a privilege. And many times when I travel with it, I'm full with shame. But from the other side, they can say, wow, it is something that I can use it for the benefit of my people. I and can you
1: can move. go back without exactly now. And I want to also clarify another misconception mm. because it's very important. Because um, for a lot of Palestinians, um, they assume that uh, a lot of the uh, Bedouins. Work for the Israelis, or Hmm. they serve in the Israeli military, Mm -hmm. and they do. Some of them, they do. And in fact, you're the second Bedouin who we have had right here on the show,
2: Um, and and a couple. The first
1: first one was uh, from Nakab or Negev Uh area, Uh and she was here on a tour talking about how they were trying mm. to settle them, force them to settle and appropriating their land, et cetera. And she's uh, not
2: still there's well, still no still, time. Yeah. And right. she,
1: she uh, she's an attorney and mm. she's a human rights activist and so right. forth. Okay. And then how her family mm. and especially like, you know, her brothers and, and mm. because she said, yeah, we have some who are ignorant about our history. Mm-hmm. So they kind of um, decided to serve within in the Israeli army, but our, our family mm-hmm. refused to serve in the Israeli army and many of them ended up in jail and, and their homes and mm-hmm. so forth. Mm-hmm. So how do you balance between? I mean, I mean, how do we educate the public like, mm-hmm. you know, there are those who, you know, because Israel uses this as as their husband, you know, the hasbara yeah. propaganda. Look mm-hmm. at us. In fact, a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. We had an Israeli general counsel right here in San Francisco who was a Bedouin. Yeah. And so they were running around saying, Look, we are a democracy. Yeah. And then you open the newspaper, any newspaper, including Haaretz and Israeli media, and say, Look how the Bedouins are losing their homes. Yeah. And they're not treated, uh, treated as first class citizens, they're maybe second, third class citizens. So, how do you balance between these two images?
2: I think the has the Israeli Haspara um will use every information to make um <sighs> to to, uh, color the the picture pink about Israel, that it's um, uh, democracy because they know that it's not democracy. I mean, if you know that you are fragile, you go and uh, defend uh, attack because you are uh, fragile and they know that they are fragile. I mean, and we don't want to waste our time on really explaining that Israel is not a democracy. It's not at all. And they will use everything to, to do it. I would say that I have no judgment for these Bedouins who go and use the um, serve the army, and I say very careful. As a peace activist, I know that from which circumstances they are doing this. And um, if we talk, take a view into the Bedouin villages and the Palestinian villages also, where people have no work, no education, nothing to do in the afternoons, nothing, 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 then. Comes the army and say, Yeah, they give you a good salary and they give you this, and they come and they, you serve it, and, and you get a uniform and you get an, um, a gun, a machine gun, so you can kill. You are a man, you have power. And this is where we need to come as, as a peace movement of giving the alternative for mm. every uh, section, sector in, in our um, you know, society to empower that uh, sector. So not to be tempted to go to that direction, and I would also say that not only the the, the Bedouins who serve the army. I don't know how we did, entered into this uh, uh, topic, but I also want to say to um, Palestinians inside the West Bank who go and work in the settlements. Yes, mm-hmm. oh God, I, there is no difference between the two, and I'm I'm really uh, careful when I say it because I also know the levels of poverty that exist in these villages and then people say what shall I do I have to go and earn my money no you are building that society that is killing you. You are building the wall that is separating you. Don't do it. But it, it's not enough to say, don't do it. We have to create the alternative. And this is my work. And if you allow me, I want to focus on what we do like. Okay,
1: uh, yeah. so no, no, I mean, it's it's very important. And this is all part and parcel of the colonial mentality yeah. and colonialism. The French did the same thing yeah. in, 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 in Algeria and uh, separated the society and mm-hmm. so forth. So what do you do? And what are you doing right here in the Bay Area?
2: So what we do is that we go to villages in the West Bank and also in 48 and we create spaces for the people to remember to remember the knowledge that they have and to remember the knowledge that they have in the whole issue of growing food, collecting our water, alternative ways of energy and making and supporting our society to become a resilient society. What doesn't mean a resilient society a resilient society is a society that the members of it create trust between them and we know that the most thing that is wounded between people is trust we lost trust between people we don't trust the other we are ignorant to the other and we create spaces where people reveal themselves from the inner what is what are my fears what are my worries what do i need why i behave the way i behave and we create spaces where there is no judgment but full integration of these powers. When I say remembering our knowledge of food, most of the Palestinian energy is going these days of boycotting let 's boycott Israel and boycott the da settlements and boycott the products and they say yes let 's boycott them and I, I say this also with uh, taking the risk as a Holder of an Israeli um, passport, I also can be punished for saying that, but I say yes let 's boycott it. but before you boycott something, you have to have the alternative. Do we have the alternative? Why do we leave uh, our fields um, empty, not taking care? Why do, do we allow that we are not present all the time in our fields, growing our food, eating a food that' it's without chemicals? not poisoning Mother Earth, which is our mother. We say, Baheb Palestine, I Vikya Palestine. Palestine is Mother Earth, a piece of Mother Earth.
0: We're speaking with Ida Shibli. Um, we have five minutes. We have a few minutes. We have a few minutes yeah. left. Um, if people want to hear more about your work in the Bay Area, I mean, you're here. So yeah. we should hear a little bit about where yeah. people can actually see you, yeah. speak with you and mm-hmm. interact with you. What are what is your itinerary here in the Bay Area?
2: The main reason why I came to the Bay Area is, first of all, I want to make a vision quest to uh, re to have my hope again. 2018 was such a tough year for us Palestinians with the whole issue of the great March of return where I lost hope Yeah. also as a peace activist. And one of my teachers is holding a vision quest. And I come, I came to make it. The second main and most important reason is that in the last. Uh, six months we took two families of refugees to our community in portugal wow. and i'm raising funds for them one of them is a family from gaza we have only the woman now the mother 25 years and her two children and husband is still in gaza and we want to get them out she's a very major actor where she can mobilize the youth in gaza and we want to support her for two years of education and the other family is from Cameroon, and i want to raise funds for them and I'm having a few um, events um, in the Bay Area where tonight I will speak yeah, tell about, us about it. the power of uh, the erotical power in us women. Why, why when we hold and we know the sacred erotical power, why we can stand in love for all what lives and hold life. So tonight it will be an event in Berkeley.
0: Is that open or a closed event?
2: For women. It's, so it's open for women open only. Open for women
0: only. <laughs> and where, where is that? Where, where people can go? I mean, where can it? women go? Where,
2: where women can go. Uh, I can give the address.
0: Or data. do you have a website where people can go yes. to to check this yes. out? Okay. Sure.
2: And uh, other events will be in Sebastopol and in other places where it is about um, speaking about, in details about the work that we do in Palestine and how people can support it. As I said in the beginning, Palestine is the issue of humanity. It's not our issue as Palestinians. And if we are, if we succeed to turn something in Palestine, then we turned it in the whole world and our planet Earth in, in, in danger, not the planet itself, us as human beings. Species are in danger. Planet Earth will remain after us. And so how do we um, uh, step into this next level of consciousness of um, Being in the unity, but not only as a slogan Really truly in unity as Jalaluddin Rumi said there's no um, Two in unity and how do we create this one? So we can stand for our task in life stewards of life
1: That's
0: the voice of Aida Shibley
1: and what is your website Aida?
0: www.tamara.org. Tamera? Tamera. Tamara? Tamara.
2: T-A-M-A-R-A? Exactly. Dot com. So, dot org. Oh, dot org. That's
1: okay, work. so go to tamara.org to learn more about Ida Shibley's work and, and support her work. Uh, We're coming to an end of another Arab talk. Another Our Arab talk, KPO <laughs> San to Francisco 89. Thank you for
0: joining us today. Thank you.
1: So we We'll talk to you next week. Uh, actually, we just come here next week. Come next week. We don't know what you'll hear, but <laughs> we'll hear <laughs> something. And uh, then you're, you're going to receive actually some reports from Spain. Yes. Because I'll be in Spain. We'll talk about c- Portugal. Wow. And then so I'll be reporting from live live from Barcelona and from Andalusia and so Live forth. from
0: Granada. So stay tuned on Arab talk. We'll Alhambra. S- yes. Alhambra. we'll see you next week. See you see next week.